All right, brace yourself because if the academics are right, you're about to be subjected to violence right now. And what I'm going to say is grotesquely offensive and would get me fired on the spot if I were a tenured professor at a university. Are you ready for this? Men and women are different. I think I hear, I think I hear pitchforks at the door right now. So before they break in, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is, in its first half, a tremendously theologically important call unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in its second half, it is a heavily contextual but overtly clear description of church practice. So I will do the best that I can to illuminate the original biblical world so that through a proper understanding of the original historical cultural context, we can maximize the ways in which we apply this teaching today. But the opening verses, oh man, they're exquisite. And they're the reason why we at Highlands Community Church regularly pray for our president, pray for our law enforcement, our first responders. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 2 knowing that while it will delve into some politically incorrect dialogue, it is the inspired word of God. We do not apologize for it. We do not try to mitigate it in any way. We let it offend if it offends because the one who objects, objects not to you and I as Christians, but to the author, the word of God, right? the Holy Spirit himself. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. There are different kinds of prayer. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's talk about this first half. The opening verses inform how we as a church pray for the people who are in leadership over us. Now, this is difficult for some people to accept today, but just imagine how difficult it was for the original recipients who were ruled over by you know, pagan Romans who even would deify themselves at different points in history, insisting that everybody worship them. They would dictate that people worship the emperor give an exemption to the Jews, and the Jews would insist that exemption not be extended to Christians. This is the background to the letter of the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. The original recipients who first received this letter were under persecution from their own government. Now, as American citizens, I mean, we can be really grateful because we live in the only government that I know of that is founded upon the distinctly Christian notion that we are endowed by our Creator with our rights. We do not have our rights dispensed to us by some throne or despot 
a royal family who's just as sinful as we are. Rather, we were born with our rights. Other societies believe that you were born with zero rights, and then you have to be granted those rights. But in the United States, our Constitution begins, begins with one of the most sublime teachings ever used in, in public policy. It begins with the distinctly Christian idea that we were born with value. We were born with rights that nobody can take away from us. Right? That, that's, a, that's an incredible thing. So we ought to be grateful and remember that even though you may not like whoever occupies the, the, uh, the Oval Office at a given point in time, you're still called to lift up that leadership and pray for the kings and people who are in high authorities. This doesn't just apply to monarchies. It applies to everybody. Verse 2 says, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Christians should be some of the most beloved constituents in any given society. Wherever we're found, we pay our taxes, we abide by the law, we are charitable and help care for the poor, and we tend to be debt-free. These are the kind of citizens that any ruler, any governor, any president should be grateful to have, even if that particular ruler doesn't actually hold the same faith. So we lift up and we pray for the people who are in, in authority over us. Romans chapter 13 gives another in-depth study on the same idea, but verse 4 is what I want to look at right now. Verse 4 carries with it tremendous theological implications. It speaks about what God wants, what God desires. Look at this. God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is God's desire, that everybody would be saved, that everybody would come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, again, we believe the whole of Scripture, all of the Bible together, and so we know that narrow is the way, narrow is the gate. Not every, that few people are going to find the truth collectively, all in all. But it's God's desire that everybody would hear it. That, that man, that nobody, that everybody should come to a knowledge of repentance. That everybody would be saved. God loves the whole world that He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. He, he gives the gospel to us and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We know that not everybody will be saved, but we know that it's God's, it's God's will that everybody comes to a knowledge of the truth. This is important in understanding how God views lost people. This is important in understanding how God feels about every soul that has ever gone to hell itself. This is what God actually desires. He desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So let us spend our lives sharing the gospel with as many people as we possibly can. This drives everything I do, every day, every move I've made in my life has been in light of this teaching, that God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. Now Paul's going to get into some of the stuff that got him in trouble in the book of Acts. He was of utmost esteem. He was of impeccable pedigree as a Pharisee. He was widely regarded as a huge leader in the Jewish community when he went by his more Hebrew name, Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Now, his name was always Saul, but he tended to go by his more Greek-friendly name of Paul later in life. Why? Because God called him to be a minister to the Gentiles. 
Jews woke up every day thanking God that they were not Gentiles. If a Jew bumped into a Gentile on the street, his whole day is ruined. He's got to go back home and change his robes, get ceremonially clean all over again, and then go back out about his day. There was huge clash between Jews and Gentiles. And so for the Jewish leaders, while Paul was on trial before the Sanhedrin, to say that God called him to share the gospel with the Gentiles, oh, it was tremendously inflammatory. Paul literally almost gets ripped apart right there in the fervor of just saying those words. He's telling his whole story. Later in the book of Acts, he's recounting the early chapters of Acts. He's giving the story of Acts chapter 9 again. And they're tracking right with him. They hear everything. They almost seem to believe that he has seen the Messiah until he says that he was called to minister to the Gentiles. That's the deal breaker. That's what sets them off. This is what has gotten Paul thrown in prison. This fact that he is, in every sense of the word, a Jew. He gives his impressive resume in 1 Corinthians. He is, he is as Jewish as it gets, but he's been called to minister to Gentiles. What a perfect person to embody this transition from the old covenant to what the author of Hebrews calls a better covenant by far. Paul embodying everything about the Old Testament as a Jew, as a Pharisee himself, now ministering to the Gentiles, the author of much of the New Testament. It is for this reason that ultimately Paul will give his life. And that's why he's so emphatic in these verses. For, I, for this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. This means that people have questioned the truthfulness. People have accused him of lying on this point. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul, knowing that these are the exact same words that have gotten him in trouble in the past, doubles down and reiterates and declares authoritatively he is called to be a minister to the Gentiles. This is the foundation for what follows. This is the focus. This is the mission. Now what follows is some specific instructions for how the church at Ephesus was to function. The church at Ephesus was right in the middle of an incredibly debaucherous place. The Temple of Artemis, one of the ancient wonders of the world, was right smack in the middle of town visible to everybody. And the act of worshiping Artemis or Diana, this, this goddess of fertility, involved debaucherous behaviors, sexual behaviors. And so for somebody to give his or her life to Christ called for suddenly a radical transformation in lifestyle, in living situation and the way that they viewed the family itself. I mean, everything about their lives had to radically change because of how debaucherous the worship of Artemis really was. This was also disruptive to the economy of Ephesus because much money was made in the practice of worshiping pagan idols. And now when people gave their lives to Christ, they were no longer purchasing pagan idols and no longer needed pagan sacrifices. Instead, they just had this one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. They had a relationship with Jesus. They didn't need idols. They didn't need Artemis. They didn't need any of the pagan pantheon. They had the one true God. So this was disruptive in the economy of Ephesus. This, was, this, this caused huge, just cataclysmic shifts in the lifestyles of people who became Christians. And when somebody becomes a Christian, they begin to become like Jesus, but that journey lasts their entire lives. Our entire lives, we are under this process called sanctification. All right? It takes a while. It takes a while 
for old sinful habits sometimes to go away. Now you are called to repentance right away. The bar is not lower for a brand new believer. It's just sometimes more difficult physiologically. New neural pathways have to be set. New speech patterns have to be formed. I've seen brothers in Christ who were immediately delivered from complete addictions. I've also seen brothers in Christ who took a while to get profanity out of the way that they spoke because it was so ingrained in, in their vocabulary beforehand. They didn't know how to talk without curse words. Now, praise God, Everybody, every one of us is called to repent from sin, all right? And the work of sanctification is real and thorough and true, and it's lifelong. So we'll never be through with this process of sanctification until we die and we're glorified with Christ in heaven. That is where perfection is actual. In the meantime, it is an ever ongoing process. So meeting these brand new Ephesians believer, Ephesian believers right where they were, here are some of the instructions that Paul gave. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. All right, this is, this is one of the biblical bases for the practice of lifting up hands in worship, lifting up holy hands in prayer. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, verse 9, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, these examples of the gold and the pearls and the costly attire and the braided hair these are specific to the context of Ephesus. Paul is perhaps describing the attire of a temple prostitute at the temple of Artemis. And so to be set apart in what was culturally considered modesty for the region of Ephesus, he is calling them not to focus on their appearances, but instead in good works. This is what sets them apart. Do you see this in verse, verse 10 with me? But what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works works. So they are not to, this is consistent with something that, that Peter also prescribes in 1 Peter 3. And also we see Paul give the same instruction in 1 Corinthians 14 to the context of Corinth. In multiple contexts, this, this instruction is similar, that these women are not to be known by their flashy appearances. And flashiness is subject qua the culture where it's rendered, not by their flashy appearances, but by their godliness, by their holiness, and these instructions by their good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? Paul appeals all the way back to the fact that, again, men and women are innately different. Going all the way back to Eden, he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. He does not let Adam off the hook. Adam had full knowledge of everything that God had said, but he does not intervene. He does not speak up. He is all the more culpable then, knowing fully exactly what God had said, but not intervening, not speaking up and leading in that moment. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What's with verse 15's childbearing? Did Paul just preach an entirely different gospel, now a very legalistic one, in which a woman must bear a child in order to be saved? What of infertile women? What of women who hear the gospel past childbearing years? What is it about bearing a child that saves her soul? This suddenly sounds like a radically different legalistic gospel if we only view it in isolation and do not use scripture to interpret scripture. And we also abdicate completely the historical cultural context of Ephesus. 
for a woman to be saved in ancient Ephesus, to go from serving at the temple of Artemis to now the wife of one husband, not known by her flashy appearance or anything like that, but by her good works, now bearing children, praise God. She is living a radically different lifestyle. She's been saved by grace through faith. She's marked not by flashy appearances, but entirely by the work of God through her. She has been saved. Also, this work of childbearing, I think, speaks back to a prophecy that was made in Genesis 3, 15, 16. This, is, this Genesis 3 moment is sometimes called the Proto-Euangelion, the pre-gospel. It shows Jesus right there in Eden. There's a particular enmity that Satan has for women. He has a particular bone to pick with the fact that women bear children because it was through woman alone, Mary, the virgin birth with which man had nothing to do whatsoever. It was completely a miracle of the Holy Spirit. It was Mary's obedience. It was through woman that the Savior entered the world. It was a baby born to a woman alone that defeated Satan. Praise Jesus. And for this reason, Satan has a particular hatred for childbearing, has a particular hatred for women, has a particular hatred for babies. And you can see that ongoing war against childbearing patently manifest in our culture in which we champion, God help us, the slaughter of babies before they're born, doing everything we can to prevent childbirth, or even celebrating and giving legislation that allows babies to be slaughtered as they are born. Oh, you can see, you can see the demonic deception that has caused otherwise very brilliant people and compassionate loving people to give this blind, not only, not only allowance, but even celebration of the practice of abortion, which is patently wrong, evil. In ancient Ephesus, where a woman who served at the temple of Artemis to give her life to Christ, become a faithful wife and bear children, constituted a total transformation in her own life. It also speaks to how the gospel came to us through this sacred act, childbearing. Praise God. God spoke about this act in the garden, speaking to the serpent, whom Revelation reveals to be the devil himself. I will put enmity between you and the woman. All right, that enmity comes and it comes to, to bear in full force in our culture today. And that was the same kind of pressure that the women of ancient Ephesus faced. It was radical for them to instead lead a godly life. Now, what of this instruction that women to remain silent in church, that they are forbidden from exercising authority or teaching a man? This is in Verses 11 and 12. I want to speak to them separately. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. This is, this is something that I've actually applied, given the context, uh, in ministering to people, whether they're male or female. Okay, why? Because these women were brand new believers. These women of Ephesus who, who joined the church now and were Christians were fresh off of the, the streets of Ephesus where the temple of Artemis was. I once led a man to Christ who was heavily riddled with, with addiction, with drug addiction. And he received the gospel with such fervor and such enthusiasm. It really blessed my soul. And I didn't want to pour any water in that fire. I wanted him to go out and immediately share the gospel with everybody else. Now, 
he the next day came back to me and was utterly convinced that he was ready to be a pastor, that he was ready to preach and teach. That was where I had to intervene and say, okay, hang on, brother, hang on. All right, you are going on about 48 hours of sobriety here. You have just heard the gospel for the very first time yesterday. And praise God for that. I do want you to continue to share John 3.16 with everybody you come in contact with and evangelize like crazy. But you're not ready to teach just yet. You still need to learn in quiet submission first. I gave these instructions to a man. Why? Because he was a brand new believer, just like the brand new believers who were women here in the context of Ephesus. So this teaching in Ephesus applied to women in general, but in particular, these women were brand new believers that were brand new to the church. So I've used that same teaching in, in the past to call a brand new, recently converted brother to learn before he would teach. Right? And praise God he did. He walked in repentance from sin, stumbled a couple of times, but in all, all in all, the story is one of victory over sin. And today he's serving faithfully at a ministry in Tallahassee, Florida. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Now, as I said at the opening of my sermon, men and women are innately different. Is God not sovereign? Is it not his right to tell us exactly that men should serve in this capacity and women should serve in this capacity? I know that these words happen to be particularly offensive given our cultural climate right now, but I take none of my cues from culture in this regard. Culture is still trying to figure out what a woman is, what a man is. I, I read my Bible and I know exactly what a man is. I am one. I know exactly who a woman is. I've married a beautiful one. I have no confusion on what gender is and, and why anatomy corresponds quite beautifully to that and what the function of complementary anatomies is. It is a beautiful purpose. It is God's ordained will that a man who has committed before God and witnesses to love his wife and respect her, and the same woman who has before God and witnesses committed to love and respect her husband, that these two with that sacred vow made before God and witnesses and the consummate, the ultimate expression of their love to one another, of all the ways that God could create new life, this is how he creates new life. This is how God has ordained the very survival of our species through the strategic and beautifully designed nature of two genders. That is a good thing. It's not a bad thing that God would call men to do some things and women to do other things. That is God's sovereign right. That was God's instruction to the people that Timothy pastored in the church at Ephesus. It was God's instruction to the original recipients of 1 Peter and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Asia. It was God's instructions to the original people in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 14, the end of the chapter. This has been God's design and God's structure, and it's a beautiful thing. For a picture of what it means to learn in quiet submissiveness, I think that the example of Mary and Martha makes a beautiful one. To sit at the feet of Jesus and hear what he has to say, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nowhere I would rather be personally than at the feet of Jesus learning in quiet submission. This seems like it's a place of lesser value, but that is not the case. That's not the case. We have some mighty women of God at Highlands Community Church who have the gifting to teach. And they can do so in full, in, in full conscience, knowing that they do so in a way that abides by what Scripture gives us. They can channel that gifting through the lens of Scripture, and it's all the more powerful as they do that. 
there are godly women here who could teach circles around me, and they use that gifting to the very glory of God. If that's you, if you are a godly woman who has the gifting to teach, and you're struggling with this verse, I don't blame you, I understand. It can be a difficult teaching, but there are beautiful ways for you to use your gifts, and I want you to use them. There are contexts in which you are way more qualified to teach than I am. All right, when it comes to women's ministry, right, women are more qualified to minister to women than men are. Praise God for women who are gifted to teach. There are often examples in next-gen ministry. I mean, the front lines of ministry, the majority of people who make a decision for Christ do so in next-gen ministry. Those are the front lines of the harvest revival that we're praying for here at the Pacific Northwest. And you know some of the most gifted leaders that we have in next-gen ministry are women. Now, we live in an age in which this tension is more easily resolved than ever, given technology. Okay? If you have the gifting to teach, but you're not called to be a pastor, right? If you're a man who has the gifting to teach, but you know you're not called to be a pastor. If you're a woman who has the gifting to teach, but you want to respect what Scripture gives us, like here in 1 Timothy 2, I want to encourage you to use online ministry. While I was at a church in Nashville, I was working in Christian publishing, but I was a teaching pastor at our church in Nashville. Now, that teaching wasn't frequent enough for me to feel like I was walking in obedience to what God had called me to do. I felt like I had to preach and teach or I was just gonna die. Like I was fearful of God's judgment upon my disobedience if I didn't use that gifting to teach. But because of my job, I was traveling and speaking at conferences all over the country. I was a doctoral student in seminary taking classes. I was traveling all the time and it was impossible for me to be in one place long enough to teach through an entire book of the Bible, for example. So I built a website, livebible.tv. I didn't know anything about building websites. I just figured out HTML5 and used some online templates that were helpful. I tried out different ways in which uh, you know, simulcasting technologies could, uh, could help me teach live. That was an important thing to me. It doesn't have to be live, but I felt like it had to be live so I could interact with people and field questions in real time. And I tried the various platforms that are out there. All right, I don't want to date this sermon too long. I don't know how, how, how far into the future people are going to watch this, but here in the year 2019, as I record this, the best option is Facebook Live. There's also Akamai and Zoom and YouTube Live. But there are various tools at your disposal. Would you research what those tools are? If you want to do live teaching or if you want to build a library of video teaching, you can minister to people who you'd otherwise not be able to reach. I saw jihadists give their lives to Christ through livebible.tv. I could not have reached them were it not for this online ministry. Initially, they began to threaten me and order my wife and my children to submit to Sharia law. I didn't oblige. I doubled down. I told them that Islam was a false religion and Muhammad was a false prophet. And everybody who believes that truly goes to hell. They, don't, they need Jesus to be saved. This, caused, this was even more inflammatory, caused more of the traffic. I could look at Google Analytics and watch all of that country just light up with, 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 with fervor. But then some of those same people began to send questions about the gospel and began to give me beautiful words of hope that they were giving their lives to Christ and to ask me to keep that confidential because it would put them in danger if people knew. It was a phenomenal thing that could not have happened were it not for this online ministry. I have seen it firsthand when you faithfully steward something. That, that particular ministry went on to reach 2,000 people a week when I was doing it right, when I was really serving it faithfully like I should have. And it let me do that wherever I was. I could set up a studio in the classroom, in the, the speaking space, in the auditorium, even my hotel room, if that was all that I had to work with. That's what I did. And I taught verse by verse the Gospel of John, and people were saved. One of the biggest ministries of LiveBible.tv became connecting people who gave their lives to Christ to churches that taught the Bible that were in their area. 
Pastors would reach out to me and say, I've never heard of live Bible, but people came and joined my church today because they were saved listening to the gospel in that ministry. So when I encourage you to use your gifting to teach in an online ministry, I'm coming from a place that has done exactly the same thing myself. I don't see that as secondary in any way to the work of a pastor at a church. Pastors are not the only ones who are gifted to teach. What I did with LiveBible.tv is gave a clear about page that said that this was not church in and of itself, not church just by itself. In fact, I, I rendered it subject to the authority of the church that I was a part of in Nashville so that if I ever taught something that was heretical, they could hold me accountable, they could rein me back in. I would encourage you to do the same thing. There are more opportunities now to use your gifting to teach ladies than at any other point in history. And I wanna encourage you in a biblical way to do exactly that. This teaching calls men to lead, calls women to follow suit, but it speaks nothing about an inequity between the two. Men and women are both beautifully, equally created. That is an excellent thing. Women of Highlands, there are more opportunities today to use your gift of teaching than in any other point in history. For example, were we to start a ministry for exotic dancers at Highlands Community Church, I would outright forbid men from going to the front lines to help with that ministry. Why? Because women could go and do that ministry and show love to those women and share the gospel with them without stumbling. Whereas for men, that's likely not an option at all. That's not even on the table, not even on the radar. I don't care how gifted that man is to teach. He has no business serving in that particular ministry. That is one of those arenas into which the women of Highlands must go and must lead and must teach. Similarly, there are arenas in which men are called to serve and to use their giftings to teach. What would I do if my baby girl, Autumn Grace, turns out to be the most gifted and anointed teacher in my house? All right, which very well could be the case. She's only two years old but she's already caused me to Google tuition at Harvard. It's expensive, so pray for me. <laughs> if she has this gifting to teach how, as her father, and how, as her mother, should my bride and I coach her and develop her and fan into flame that gifting that is within her, well, personally, at the moment, I would immediately call my contacts in Nashville and say, hey, for your next women's ministry event, your next girls' ministry event, I've got your keynote speakers, my baby girl, Autumn Grace. I would teach her how to do everything I've done with Live Bible. I would equip her for ministry opportunities right here at Highlands. And she could, like so many other godly women I've seen, speak in front of packed out arenas with thousands of people bigger than any other venue I've ever spoken in and proclaim the gospel loudly with passion. I would coach her to use that gift through the lens of scripture, where it is more potent, where it is designed, and where it's more effective. I wanna close with the big picture message of 1 Timothy chapter two, which I believe is the gospel. The instructions that he gives for men and women in the second half, I believe that those follow in their specifics, but the overall mission is articulated in the first seven verses of this chapter. So fully embracing the unique roles that God gives to men and women in a, in a perfect design alongside one another, 
I want to proclaim the gospel. I want to speak directly to my skeptical friend, my lost friend, my militant atheist friend, the person who is far away from God, wants nothing to do with God, or you have been so wounded in the past by the church that you have thought of God as somebody who hates you, that you don't think God wants you to be saved. I've encountered this before, and I want to speak directly to you. I want to tell you right now, God wants you to be saved. And I can, stay, I can say that with, with a clear conscience straight out of the word because it says exactly that right here. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants you to be saved. God wants you to be saved. He wants all people. He wants the gospel proclaimed in every nation, in every language, every tribe, this is a beautiful picture of revelation in which all the nations of the earth are represented. It's a beautiful thing. God wants all people to be saved. He wants everyone to hear the knowledge of the truth. And that includes you where you sit right now. If you're hearing the gospel and you think to yourself, I don't think God wants to save me at all. You're wrong and you're standing in direct contradiction to what this patently says at face value. God wants you to be saved. So if the Holy Spirit is drawing upon your heart, if there's anything within you that believes that God is telling you this is your moment. This is the day. It's true. I have wanted you to be saved. Yes, I know about your sin, but I want you anyway. Yes, I know about the ways in which you failed, but I want you anyway. This is God's drawing upon your heart. This is a sacred moment. Don't let it pass you by. Don't revile and blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Rather, let the Holy Spirit work upon your heart right now and acknowledge the fact that Jesus is Lord. You've always known that it's true, so would you proclaim it now? Would you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord? And declare that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and so be saved the way that God wants you to be saved according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. If God's drawing upon your heart, if the desire of God is being realized through your heart right now as you're being drawn by the Father to the Son, say, by the Spirit, would you pray with me? God, I believe in you. I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life. And I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So right here and now, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. As is your desire, according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you've given your life to Christ, you gotta let us know. Contact us on our website, highlandcc.org, or fill out a Connect card on the Highlands app. You gotta tell us, you gotta let us know if God's desire that all men would be saved applies to you exactly here and now. If you feel a calling upon your life to exercise a gift of teaching, but you're not called to be a pastor, would you let us know so we can find ways in which you could use that gift to serve fully, in good conscience, through the lens of Scripture, at Highlands Community Church, to the glory of God, because we need you. We're growing, and we need more people to serve in these, according to these giftings. Would you let us know how this Scripture has called you to obedience to your gifting, to salvation in Jesus Christ, so that we can give you your next steps? Baptism, connection with the group, an opportunity to serve. 
Would you make Highlands Community Church your church and join us through membership? Thank you so much for sticking with me through a difficult text, Highlands Community Church. I've had the opportunity to meet with every one of our elders to solidify exactly where it is that we stand collectively. We set this issue of gender roles in its proper place as something that is secondary to the gospel itself. But we hold fast to a biblical interpretation in all things. Highlands is a beautiful place where people come from various denominational backgrounds, and we come together united by Scripture itself. Where we once were of this denomination or that denomination, when we come to Highlands, we are Highlands. And Highlands is a church that is steadfast upon the Word of God, even where that passage is in direct conflict with what our culture holds at a given moment. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for your steadfastness to the word. And even if you don't agree with my interpretation of this particular passage, thank you for being a part of Highlands Community Church. We may not agree on everything, but we agree upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to that end, I will strive as long as I live. Thank you. God bless you.